Okay, so um, I want to kind of jump into things here. Our campuses, all of our campuses actually, have been doing this series the past few weeks on habits, actually specifically on spiritual disciplines. And so we've said that we're creatures of habit. And as we start the new year, you know, a lot of us are looking to make New Year's resolutions, right? We're going we're gonna to start some new habits. We're going to start some, self, some healthy habits, right? Other people are like, man, I hate New Year's resolutions. I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're stupid. I get it. The reality is the beginning of the year is a really natural time. It's a good time for us to kind of step back and look at our lives and say, what are the things that I'm doing? What are the habits that I'm engaging in in my life? And what are those habits leading me toward, right? And so in a nutshell, this is what we said. This is kind of an overview of this series. In a nutshell, we said that what we do, little by little, determines the direction of our lives. What we do, all the little choices that we make throughout the day, little by little, determine the direction of our lives. And so we looked at a passage, Pastor Tony looked at this the very first week. See if you remember this. It's Galatians chapter 6. It's kind of the foundational passage for this series. This is what it says. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Here's a truth. Don't be deceived. You reap what you sow. Right? If you sow seeds of selfishness, if we sow seeds of sin, life's going to be a mess. Right? If we sow seeds that honor God, life's going to be full. Life's going to be abundant. Life's going to be awesome. And life's going to lead to the eternal life that you and I are looking for. This is truth. Like this, this is reality. This is how God designed it. It doesn't matter if we believe it. It doesn't matter if we accept it. It's still true, right? This is just how things happen. The, the cumul- accumulation of our choices determines the direction of our lives. And so he said, if this is true, then we need to be really careful in how we're living our lives, right? We need to be really careful about the habits that we're engaging in in our lives. Are our habits leading us to destruction or are our habits leading us to eternal life? So last week, um, here at our campus, Pastor Adam from the Norton campus was here. It's fun to have him here. And he talked about scripture. Actually, he talked about meditation of scripture, right? Like thinking about it. We don't just read the Bible to read it and check it off the list, but we read it and we think about it. We think about what it means in our lives. That's what Pastor Adam talked about last week. Tonight, I want to lead us in a conversation about fellowship. And I want to do it by looking at a passage that, man, I've probably read this passage two dozen times. I mean, I've read it so many different times. But I read it this week, actually the last couple weeks, through different eyes. And I saw some things in this passage that I'd never seen before. And so I'm really excited to, to talk about that with you. So the passage is Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to flip there, if you wouldn't mind. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we have a whole table full of them here in the back. Uh, we'd love to give that to you. It's page 813 in the church Bibles. And so as you're flipping there, I want to say this too. So the last couple weeks I've been reading this book by a guy named John Ortberg, which is actually a guy that Pastor Adam referenced last week in a different book. But I've been reading this book's great title. Here's, here's the book title. Everyone's normal till you get to know them. 
which I agree with, right? Like, once you get to know us, we're all kind of weirdos, right? <laughs> but, so anyway, he wrote this book, and he had this really interesting chapter that had a very interesting take on this passage that we're going to look at here in Mark 2, that I want to share a little bit of kind of his reflections on it with you. So we're going to look at the passage here in a second, but before we do, let me say this. Every time I've looked at this passage at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, every time that I've looked at it, I've always focused on Jesus. I've always focused on what Jesus does in this passage, which is appropriate. Jesus is really the center of this passage. What he does is he miraculously heals this guy. It's amazing. Actually, he heals this guy twice in two different ways, spiritually and physically. And I think that that's like the big emphasis of this passage. Jesus, the Son of God, is able to pronounce spiritual healing for people and bestow physical healing for people, declare physical healing for people. He's simultaneously in this passage, he's showing compassion and grace, but also he's displaying his power and his authority. So like every time I've read this passage, like I'm enamored by Jesus and what Jesus does, like this healing that he is. We're going to look at it here in a second. But I'm always focused on him. But, you know, I never spent much time reading this passage thinking about the other guys. Like, there's, there's other guys in this passage. I'm always so focused on Jesus and what he does in healing this guy that I've missed what's going on kind of in the background. Jesus is in the foreground. And please don't hear me wrong. This is, this is focused on who Jesus is. So I don't want you to miss that. But I also don't want you to miss what's going on in the background. So I want to look at this together. So Mark chapter 2, hopefully you're, you're there in your Bibles. As we read this, I want you to focus not only on Jesus, don't miss Jesus and what he does, okay? But also focus on the other guys in this passage. Ready? Here we go. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. This is what it says. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, I'm sorry, lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there and they started thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's an incredible story, right? Like an incredible story. Clearly the focus of this story is on Jesus and his compassion and his grace in which he deals with this man, this paralyzed man. But also his power and his authority displayed in this man's life as he heals them. They're in the foreground of the story, right? They're the focus of the story. But we can't miss what's in the background. 
Did you catch the people in the background? You got some teachers of the law, right? They're kind of the knuckleheads in the story. In the Bible, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they're the ones often, most often, who miss it. Jesus kind of doesn't fit into their paradigm, and so they reject him, right? He doesn't fit into what they're looking for, and so they mock him, and and they try to trip him up, and eventually they're the ones that lead the way in killing him. They don't seem to be so interested in discovering the truth about Jesus and following him as much as they're interested in doing and pursuing what fits into their preferences and what fits into their lifestyles. And we see this all around us today, too, right? Like, we see this all around us today. A lot of times we think, man, I am a logical, reasonable person, and I make my decisions on what's true and what's real. Most of us don't do that. Many times we don't do that. We, many times we can care less about what's true if, if it doesn't feel good to us, if it doesn't fit into our lifestyle, if we're not careful. That's what the Pharisees were like. That's what the teachers of the law were like. So you got the knuckleheads. I don't want to spend too much time on them. you got the knuckleheads in the background. you got the teachers of the law in the background. But then you've got the friends. you got these buddies, right? And that's what I want to focus on here. Because this is what struck me so hard this week. I've missed it. I've missed it over and over and over. Isn't it amazing you can read scripture over and over again and you can miss things. And then it's like God turns the lights on. God turned the lights on for me this week. Think about what's going on here. Back in the ancient world, to be paralyzed like this guy was, was especially challenging. It was especially challenging. My wife is an occupational therapist. She works at a nursing home now. She used to work at a rehab facility. There were no nursing homes back then. There were no rehab facilities back then. There were no assisted living facilities back then, right? There's no surgeries that went on that can make things a little bit better and maybe help him be able to walk. It's interesting, many times, especially among the ancient Greeks, babies that were born with physical deformities, physical abnormalities, you know what they did to them? They just immediately killed them, wiped them away. Because they thought that they would be worthless in that culture, worthless in society. Among the ancient Hebrews, it was assumed that if you had a physical defect, a physical abnormality, it was the result of sin. You were being punished. It was a result of either your sin or the sin of your family in your life. This guy would have been relegated in that culture at that time with what was going on in his life being paralyzed. He would have been relegated to being a beggar, having to depend on everyone else for everything, seen as absolutely worthless in that culture. His life would have been lived out. Think about this. Think about how how tough this would be. His life would have been lived out almost entirely on a three foot by six foot mat. Most of his life sitting there having other people wait on his needs. And that mat for him would have been a symbol of all that was wrong, all that was ugly, all that was terrible in his life. But somehow, in some way, for whatever reason, this guy got deeply connected with these four other guys, right? He got deeply connected with them. For who knows what reason, these four men were totally committed to him. And we don't have a whole lot of details here. So we kind of got to use our imagination a little bit, kind of think about, kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably these four guys are the guys that carried him around. Probably these four guys are the guys that cleaned him up when he soiled himself. Probably these are the four guys that fed him or at least got him food 
These are the four guys that would have spent significant time with him, sacrificially, right? Encouraging him, helping him. And they heard that Jesus had come into town and they heard that Jesus healed people. They didn't know how. Who cares, right? This guy could heal their buddy. And I wonder what that conversation would have been like, you know, when, when they first like bring this up to him to get him there. Like, did you hear? Did you hear that Jesus is in town? I mean, this guy could heal you. Yeah. I've been paralyzed all my life. How's he going to heal that? I don't know, but what do you got to lose, you know? Like, he could, you could walk. I don't want you guys to have to carry me across town just to be disappointed and then have to carry me back. Yeah, but what if? Like, what, what if he could heal you? Listen, we're going, man. Get ready. We're heading out here, right? And they convince him to let him carry him to Jesus to maybe be healed, right? Maybe be healed. And he allows them to carry him on his mat, his very real symbol of all that was wrong, all that was ugly, all that was terrible in his life. This paralyzed man, think about this. This paralyzed man allowed his friends into his weaknesses. And he allowed them to help him carry his burdens, right? Can you imagine how hard that would have been? Just think about yourself. You're probably pretty independent like I am, right? Think about how hard that would have been to open up his life in the most intimate ways and depend on others, to allow others into your weaknesses and allow others to carry your burdens. How do you do with that? I think, think about that in your own life. How do you do with allowing others into your weaknesses? How do you do with allowing other people to carry your burdens? How much do I? How do you think it felt when they got to this house, right? Like they built this up, they got to this house, and they get there, and it's like overflowing with people. It's so full. Can you imagine how deflating that would have been to the paralytic man? Like, he's probably getting his hopes up, right? Like, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe a miracle's going to happen. Maybe this is it. And he gets there, and it's just completely overflowing full. And what do you think it was like when somebody was like, boys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to carry him up to the roof. We're going to dig a hole in there, and we're going to lower him down with ropes. Like, I love that. I love people like that, right? Like, they're going to get the job done. They're not going to take no for an answer. We're going to run up there. We're going to carry him up there. We're going to bring him down right in front of Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. Now, it sounds maybe especially crazy in our culture today. But you've got to know, like, the houses back then were different than the houses today. So the houses, many of them had stairs on the outside of the house that led up to the roof. So it's not like they were Spider-Man trying to climb the wall carrying this guy. Like, they're carrying them upstairs, right? And the roofs were different than our roofs as well. You know, we have shingles and plywood and stuff like that. They're different back then. They're like branches, uh, brush, right? And dried mud on there. This one had tile clay tile. Some of them did back then, some of them didn't. So you peel back the tile. You kind of dig through the brush branches and dried mud and then lower them down in there. So it's maybe not quite as crazy as what we think. And, and the repair, I read a lot about this this week, the repair wouldn't be like absolutely absurd. I mean, it'd be a little bit of work to repair this, but it wasn't that crazy, okay? But it was no small task what these guys were willing to do for him. 
And so they do. They take this risk. They carry their friends up to the, their friend up to the roof of the house. They dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down right in front of Jesus, not knowing how Jesus would respond. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? And I don't know if you caught this or not. It's really easy to miss this. I don't know if you caught this or not. But as their friend is lowered down right there in front of Jesus, here's what the text says. It says that Jesus saw their faith, and there, in the most natural reading of that passage, there means the friends. It's referring to the friends. It's not actually referring to the paralytic man. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus sees the friend's faith, what does he do? He meets this paralytic man's greatest need. And he heals him spiritually, right? He says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Which everybody knows is only something that God could do, right? Like, we can't declare forgiveness of sins. And so the man came for his physical needs to be met. But Jesus recognizes that that's not his greatest need. His greatest need is a spiritual need. I think about that and I think, man, we do that all the time. I do that all the time. You know, many times we can think our greatest need is not really our greatest need, you know. I think maybe my greatest need is to win the lottery and be able to pay off all my bills. No. Listen, in God's economy, this is always true, in God's economy, our greatest needs are always spiritual needs, right? We may think it's physical. We may feel the pressure of physical. But in God's economy, our greatest needs are spiritual needs. And so Jesus heals him spiritually first. And when Jesus perceives that the teachers of the law are starting to get a little ticked off at him, right? Like, who does he think he is? Saying his sins are forgiven. When he says that, what does he do? Well, he heals him physically too, right? He says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And everybody is absolutely amazed. Now, when I read that, and when I think about it, like immediately, I, I have some very clear and immediate takeaways. Just some things that like jump off the page to me, that strike me. The first is that Jesus is awesome. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how else to say it. That's the first thing that hits me there. You know, like you see how, how Jesus responds to these men being interrupted. Listen, no teacher likes to be interrupted, right? I don't think Jesus was the exception. And he's interrupted in the most ridiculous way possible, right? Somebody's digging through the roof and lowering him. I mean, imagine if that was happening right now, right? Back, and, and so the, the roof was like dirt, right? There would have been dirt like dropping on his head, right? Like imagine that. How does he respond when he sees that, when he sees what's going on here and they, and they lower him right in what does he do he just loves these guys he loves them he has compassion on them he has mercy on them and then he rewards them for the lengths that they would go to because they love their friend and he declares forgiveness I love Jesus as an aside by the way he responds to us that same way when we go to him, he doesn't respond with anger. You're interrupting me. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been through, he responds to us with that same sort of compassion and grace and mercy. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. Man, Jesus is awesome. The second thing that jumps out to me is this guy's friends were awesome, right? Like these dudes were amazing dudes. They're kind of my idols. They're kind of my friend idols, you know? Like I want to be like these guys. I want to be that sort of friend to people because they were willing to do whatever it took for their buddy. Like they were there for him. Nothing was going to stop them. 
It wasn't about them being inconvenienced. Carrying their friend's mat didn't scare them, right? Carrying the burdens that his mat symbolized didn't deter them. It didn't push them away from him. It was about getting this guy that they loved healed. Like, these guys are amazing guys. I think, man, I want friends like that. I think I want to be that kind of friend, right? That's the second thing. It jumps off the page to me. Third thing, we all have a mat. You know what I mean by that? Like we, we, we all have a M-A-T, one T. There was a mat in the last service. He's like, I'm the mat, right? That's what I mean. We all have an M-A-T. We all have a mat. We all have things about us that are embarrassing, that are ugly, that are painful, that are weak. And I love that this paralyzed guy had enough courage to let other people into his mat, into his weaknesses, and actually help him carry his mat. And I think about that, and I think, do I do that enough? Like, am I honest enough with people about my weaknesses? And then, you know, you don't broadcast it, right? But people that I love, people that know me. And do I let people carry my mat? What's your mat? We all have a mat. What's your mat? And are you allowing other people into that in your life? Do they know? Can they help you carry your mat? carry the burdens that you're dealing with. That's the third thing. just jumps out to me. Fourth thing, I think it's amazing that the reason that this, that this guy is ultimately healed is because of his friend's faith. Like, that's amazing to me. Again, we don't know what it was like getting the paralyzed guy there. We don't know what it was like, but I've got to imagine he was reluctant at first. Like, come on. There's no way this is going to happen to me. Do you know how long I've been paralyzed? Do you know how long I've been dealing with this? Right? But somehow, these guys convince him to do it. When this guy was too weak to do it on his own, his friends saved him. Think of it that way. Like, his friends saved him. How did they save him? Well, they brought him to the feet of Jesus. And then what happened? Jesus did what Jesus does. He provided mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing. It's an incredible story, isn't it? I mean, it's an incredible story. I want friends like that in my life. And I want to be a friend like that to other people. I was reading an article this week by a guy named uh, Johan Hari. Johan Hari. He actually did a TED Talk on this, too. I was reading this article. He wrote a book called Chasing the Scream. And it's kind of looking at, it's, it's very interesting, about drugs and addiction and kind of what compels us, what draws us to that. And what he did was he looked at um, this, this study that was done in the early 20th century, this experiment on rats. And this is what, he, what, what the experiment was. They took a rat and they put this rat alone in a cage with with two bottles of water, okay? One bottle of water was just water. The second bottle of water was water with hardcore drugs mixed in, okay? These are rat experiments, okay? Water, and the other was water and hardcore drugs, heroin or cocaine, okay? And so uh, they put this rat in there, and what happened was almost every time the rat would drink the water, eventually they'd drink the drug water, and then they'd start going back to the drug water over and over and over again, right? Until they all died. 
almost every rat in this experiment died. They overdosed. They took the drug water until they were gone. Right? Interesting. And so what's the, what do they take away from that? Drugs are bad. Drugs are addictive. They have this physiological effect on us where we take them and then we start needing them. Right? Stay away from drugs. Kind of where the war on drugs campaign came from. It's interesting. But in the 1970s, you had this psych prof, the psych professor from Vancouver, who noticed that the rats were always alone in the cage. This is so interesting to me. The rats were always alone in the cage. And so he said, what if we did some different experiments? And instead of having the rats alone all of the time, we put other rats in there, and we made it like a really nice rat environment. And so this professor built this really, it was like an amusement park for rats. He called it, he called it Rat Park. <laughs> so they had like all kinds of like colored balls in there and tunnels for the rats to play with and food, plenty of food for them to eat and other rats in there as well. And of course they put the two bottles of water in there. They put the regular water and they put the water mixed with the hardcore drugs. And what happened was incredible. It was incredible. You know what happened? So the rats tried, eventually they tried the drug water. They didn't know the difference between the two at first, but very quickly they stayed away from it. In fact, they shunned it. The rats with friends and in a positive and a good environment used less than a quarter of the drugs that the isolated rats used. And listen to this. None of them died. Isn't that interesting? So the conclusion of the article is that the problem wasn't, talking about addiction again, so the problem wasn't addiction. Like we have this physiological thing where you take drugs and you have to have them anymore. He said the problem was bonding. This is a quote from the article. It says, we should stop talking about addiction altogether and instead call it bonding. A heroin addict has bonded with heroin because she couldn't bond as fully with anything else. So the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It is human connection. I'm not sure it's that simple, okay? I think there's a lot of nuance and complexity to this, but I think his point is well taken. Chew, chew on that for a second. He, he goes on. He brings out some other implications for us in our need for relational bonding. He says, when, so he talks about crisis in our lives. Think about the crises in your life. He said, when you have a crisis in your life, it's not your Twitter followers or your Facebook friends that come to help you. Who is it? Well, it's the flesh and blood friends that you have deep relationships with, right? Personal relationships with. He looked at this other study that showed that the the number of close friends that the person has, the average number of close friends that people have, has been steadily declining since the 1950s. Steadily declining since that time. But the square footage in the average home during that time has increased. And so he said this. It's interesting. He said, we've traded floor space for friends. We've traded stuff for connections and the result is that we're one of the loneliest societies that there's ever been talking about the power and the need for human connection how each and every one of us needs it you know what it makes me think about makes me think about those friends we've been talking about like how much did this paralyzed man who was going through crisis constant crisis hard things how much did he need these guys And what kind of an impact did they have on his life? You know what else it makes me think of? It makes me think of all the times that the Bible talks about our vital need for relationships. It makes me think of all of the one another's in the Bible. You know what I mean by that? Like many times the Bible says, you know, love one another, care for one another, serve one another. 
Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And it makes me think of what the Bible says about you and I being made in the very image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. Who is God? Well, God, the God of the Bible, is one God, right? He's one God. But He's eternally existed as three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God existing in perfect relationship with Himself. Think about that. God inherently exists in perfect relationship with Himself. And we are made in His image. God is a relational God. And He made you and me in His image. You and I are relational beings, right? We are made to be in relationship with one another. And it's different than any other thing that God has made. Like any other animal. Think about any other animal. Any other life form on this planet. They don't have those same relational needs. Those same relational desires that you and I have, right? Like, like cows don't sit around chewing the cud, sharing their feelings with each other, right? You know, Bob, I just, I feel unfulfilled right now, right? Like, this is not a conversation cows have. Like, there's more for me than this patch of grass that I've been chewing, right? That doesn't happen. Like, monkeys don't get in a fight and then get together later and resolve the conflict and work through their issues. You know, Maurice, <laughs> you know, Maurice, I just feel like we're drifting apart. It's been so long since you sat behind me and picked bugs out of my scalp and eaten them, right? Like, that's not a, that's not a conversation that animals have. But human beings are different. People are different. God made us to be so highly relational, just like the God whose image we're created in. Right? It's how he made us. We're not just a pack animal like anyone else. Unlike any other part of God's creation, we're made to be known deeply and to know other people deeply. And it's impossible. I think we can make a strong argument for this. It's impossible to follow God the way he desires us to follow him in this life alone. It's impossible. We need other people. So God made us to be in relationships with each other. It's how he made us. You and I need to be in relationships with other people in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. So how do we make this? How do we make biblical community, Christian fellowship, how do we make it a habit in our life? Well, I think I really agree with something that that guy that I referenced earlier, John Ortberg, I really agree with something that he said. He said, people rarely drift into deep community. Think about that. Do you agree with that? People rarely drift into deep community. Occasionally it happens, right? But most of the time, you have to be intentional to develop deep relationships with people. And, and can we all just admit, like right at the beginning, can we all just admit that we're, t- we're too busy for this, right? I'm too busy, you're too busy, we're all too busy to do this right now. Can we all just, let's just get that out of the way right now, right? We're all too busy for it. But can we also admit that what God expects from us and what God desires for us, he gives us enough time to do, Right? He gives us enough time to do. It may mean that we need to reprioritize our schedules. It may mean that we need to reorganize some things, right? But we have time to do the things that are most important to us, right? We all do. And can we also just admit that none of us is strong enough to do this on our own? Like, none of us is strong enough to follow Jesus in our own strength, 
without the help of other people. Guys, we can be terrible about this. I mean, guys can be the worst. I'm strong. I don't need other people. Baloney. It's not true. Yes, you do. You're just fooling yourself. You're just trying to fool yourself. You show me a man or a woman who's strong enough to follow Jesus on their own in this life without anyone else, and I'll show you a man or woman who's struggling in their walk with God. And I will show you a man or woman who is not becoming all that God desires them to become. Listen, this is, this is so true. Being strong isn't being independent. Guys, hear this. Being strong is not being independent. That's not what it is. Being strong is having the courage to let others see your mats, your weaknesses, and having the humility to allow other people to help you carry them. That's strength. That's courage, right? Because we need biblical community. We need fellowship. We need deep relationships with other people that are moving toward God. It's how God made us. So how do I make it a habit in my life? Like, what do I do? At some point, we just got to trust God that this is what he wants for us. I got to encourage you to think about it, pray about it, right? But at some point, we just got to trust that this is what God wants for us. We got to take him at his word, right? And then we have to commit to him that we're going to pursue it. I'm going to do it. I commit to you, God, that I'm going to pursue this in my life, even when it's uncomfortable. And guys, I'll be honest. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, right? Sometimes you go and you kind of begin to open your life up to people and it can be uncomfortable to allow other people in. Or other people open their lives up to you and you start seeing the dirt in other people's lives. It can make us uncomfortable, right? But we do it anyway. We commit to God that we'll do it anyway. Even when others hurt us. And it just goes with it, guys. When we open up our lives, when we become vulnerable to other people, we'll get hurt sometimes. We will. It happens. We live in a sinful world, right? With sinful people. But God walks with us through that hurt. He walks with us through that pain. We commit to it in spite of that. Even when maybe we have a hard time finding people that we click with, you know? And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it takes a little time to find people that, that make sense to me or that I make sense to them, right? But we pursue it anyway. At some point, we just got to take the risk. And we step out into the unknown. And we acknowledge that there's never a good time for it. There's never a good time for it, right? We may need to reprioritize. We may need to reorganize, right? But we commit to God that we're going to do it. That we're going to make it a natural part of the rhythm of our lives. We commit to Him that we're going to do it His way. And we know what doing things His way leads to, right? Galatians 6, I'll read it again. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows seeds to please I'm sorry, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, aka doing things God's way, right? From the spirit will reap eternal life. Guys, part of, part of my responsibility to you, part of every pastor's responsibility to the people that he's pastoring, that he's serving, is to help you and me, because I'm part of the flock too, do the things that God calls us to do. 
right? That's, that's part of my responsibility to facilitate this process of us growing together as followers of Jesus. And we take that very seriously. And so one of the things that we do is we talk about relationships. One of the things that is incredibly important at every campus of Grace Church is this idea of biblical community. And the way that we do biblical community, the way that we do fellowship is through groups, is through small groups. And so at this campus, we call them grace groups. A couple of the other campuses, two campuses call them grace groups, two campuses call them life groups. It's all the same thing. Small groups where we open up our lives to other people, right? We allow other people into the dirt of our lives and we enter into the dirt of their lives. And I want to encourage you, like I want to challenge you this is, this is awesome. Like, I love that, you know, we're, we're all in a room together and we get to talk about this. We get to open up God's Word. We get to sing together. This is awesome. But this is not all that there is in being a part of the church. In fact, if this is all that there is, life's going to be a struggle for us. You may come here on Saturday and get a little bit of a recharge, but Sunday, Monday comes around and you're going to be struggling again. We have so much that we have to do just in me reaching out to God, right? Like praying to Him. We're going to talk about that next week. Opening up God's Word and reading and thinking about it, right? But then also gathering together in a smaller community where people know your name, where people know what's going on in your life, right? We need that. So I want to challenge you. We got groups. We're actually starting two new groups here in the next couple weeks, next few weeks. We have, I don't know, eight or nine different groups meeting right now. Different times of the week, different uh, kind of meeting different needs. Some of them are for everybody. Some of them are a little bit more specific in who they're trying to reach. But we got some great leaders that care about you. I want to challenge you to take the risk. Actually, I want to challenge you before you even do that to just get on your knees and talk to God about it and ask Him to impress on your heart how important this is. And He will. And when He does, take the step out. Take the risk. Open up your life to other people and allow other people into yours. We, we want to help you any way we can. You can... Mark it on your connection card. You could go online and see a list of the groups. You can call into the church. We'll help you. In two weeks, we're doing our group connect. There's a little information in your program with that where we'll have all of our group leaders down in the library all in one big room after both services and say, just go down there. If you're not connected to a group, go down there and walk around and get to know some people. It helps just to get to know somebody, right? We want to help you take that step out and do what God has wired us to do. I promise you, if you do, that you won't regret it.